Hey, good morning, everyone. This morning, scripture reading will be from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John 3, 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet, be, not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is a bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of heaven belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what has been seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has been giving all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, family. Good to see you. If you're a guest today, I'm especially glad to have you with us. Thank you for choosing to join our, our family today. Uh, to worship Jesus. Uh, how many of you have taken advantage of the opportunity to go dine in off base? Show of hands, show of hands, be brave. All right, all right. A lot better uh, percentage than the first service. I was really disappointed in our family. I had to, had to tell them that. Because, listen, you know how the cycle works, right? Like you got a window to make this happen. So let's just shepherd our souls right now. Don't be dashed against the rocks when this little window closes again, right? Like we, we are all so familiar with the cycle. So no surprises. It's just the way it is. Let's pray and uh, we'll go right to work in the gospel of John. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for giving us another day of life. We thank you for uh, loving us, even though we were rebel, rebel kids who loved the darkness more than we loved our dad. Thank you for pursuing us. Jesus, thank you for descending further than our lowest point to be our rescuing king. And Spirit, we thank you for uh, birthing us into a new life. You, you caused us to be born again. You gave us eyes to see and ears to hear our Father's voice. And so we pray again this morning, Spirit, that you would reorient our hearts on our dad's voice and on his presence so that all of our lives would be reoriented on Father, Son, and Spirit for your fame, for the good of others, and for our joy as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're pressing into our series in the gospel according to John. And by now we all know it, right? Jesus is? All right. One more time. Jesus is? Yes. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. The big idea that's going to come out of the text this morning is right here for you. As Jesus' presence increases, joy is made complete. The Father's wrath 
obsolete, okay? As Jesus' presence in my life increases, my joy will be made complete, the Father's wrath obsolete. How many of you have heard of the band known as the Avet Brothers or Avet Brothers? You know who I'm talking about? All right, they're kind of my jam, at least for this season of life. I enjoy a lot of their music. And as much as I love Okinawa, you know what I do really miss, though, is being able to go to a show or a concert, I don't care, outdoors, indoors, just a live show with good music and maybe a plate of food or something. Um, I miss that. I love Okinawa, but I miss that dynamic. So the Yvette brothers have this song entitled, uh, Tell the Truth, Tell the Truth. And the opening lines basically go, and this is not a sermon about their song, by the way, but the, the opening line basically goes, tell the truth to yourself. That's repeated a bunch of times. Tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. I thought those were really compelling lines uh, because we have a complicated relationship with truth. Uh, but we also, there are, there are a lot of pieces of our lives that are disordered and disconnected from the Father and from the gospel. The reason there is disorder in our lives overwhelmingly is because we are not living in our Father's truth or submitting to the Father's truth. Overwhelmingly, that is the root cause for the disorder in our lives. But we have a complicated relationship with truth. In fact, the song goes on, you know, it says, tell the truth to yourself, the rest will fall in place. And then as it kind of bridges to the rest of the song, it's really a litany of confessions about who he lies to. He's like, I lie to my doctor, I lie to the lawyer, I lie, and just right on down the line. He has a heart that tells lies. And I thought the song really beautifully captures our own complicated relationship with truth. And I want to show you that complicated relationship and how it's right in the text before we really start unpacking our big idea. And we'll do that by looking, let's start at verse 31. It says this, he who comes from above is above all. So clearly John's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is above all. He comes from above. And what he's saying is Jesus has a certain position of authority or preeminence, right? Like this is basic to Christian belief. Jesus is God himself. He's supreme over all things. He's our creator. He, he's above all in that sense. He has the right to claim authority over my life. And I do not have the right to push back, right? So he's above all. But he's not just talking about that position of authority here, because notice what he says. He says, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So that's you and me. We belong to the earth and we speak in an earthly way. In other words, Jesus has this position or perspective where he, can, he sees all things, he knows all things, and he holds all truth. We have this position, right? You've got to let the image form in your mind where we, our feet are planted in a on a particular GPS coordinate on this globe and we're exceptionally limited to what we can see. We are so limited in our ability to know the truth beyond what we can see and feel and hear right now. And there are things we don't even know about our, ourselves, our own hearts, right? That's what's being said here. Uh, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Did you ever watch the Truman Show? The Truman Show? 
Jim Carrey, right? His character. So he's, he's living in a dome, basically. But he's been led to believe he's living this, since this, this real life. But it's fake. Everything about his existence is fake. But he's not awakened to the reality that his existence is fake until he gets word from the outside, right? Word descends down. Guys, there is not a better example of what our lives are like in rebellion. You lived the Truman Show before Jesus descended and gave you the truth. You lived in a dome. It was a shell of an existence. It was fake. And then Jesus gave you the truth. So he descends from above. He's above all. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one, rece- there, no one receives his testimony. There's our complicated relationship with the truth. We have such a complicated, broken relationship with the truth. We need Jesus as the Son of God to descend from above to give us the truth. But even when he does, we're like, no, that's not true. We reject what he says. That's why last week we talked about the need to be born again and how it's got to be a work of the Spirit. Because unless the Spirit causes our hearts to be born again, we will not embrace the truth that Jesus brings to us, right? Verse 32, he, who bear, or he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, right? So Jesus sees these things. He hears these things. In other words, he knows them. They're his truths. He's familiar with them. We know nothing about them. But he, he, he descends and he gives these things to us. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. God's true. And so he descends to give us that truth, to open our eyes and to open, us our, open our ears so we can see ourselves for who we really are and see God for who he, he really is. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Beautiful picture. The Father's given Jesus full authority. Jesus descends with the truth, not for our condemnation, but because we are already condemned. And then in love, the Father draws us through his light, right? The light of truth, and he gives this to us. But our hearts are so broken and our relationship with the truth so complicated that we reject unless the Spirit causes us to be born again and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Crazy, right? Crazy relationship with the truth. And so this text today is going to present us with two pieces of truth that, guys, just as your friend and as your pastor, we need to slow down and wrestle with these two ideas that are going to flow out of the text this morning. And here they are, uh, two ideas. My self-absorption is likely why I don't experience enduring joy. Now, the reason I use the word likely and I placed an asterisk is because life is very nuanced, isn't it? So I'm not trying to broad stroke because let's acknowledge there are, there are some, of, some of our family members are in the room this morning and you are in a very dark season. Um, you, you are working through pain. You are processing pain. You're not yet ready to process pain. So there are other reasons why joy may have disappeared from your soul for a season. So I'm not... We're not here to condemn anybody who is in that kind of a season. The gospel actually is a medicine for your soul, not, not a hammer. But that's just a general principle of what is generally true of us as rebel kids, that our self-absorption in rebellion, but also still that remaining tendency now as our father's kids, is the primary reason why we don't experience joy. And then the second truth that we need to wrestle with is this, my self-dependence likely signals that God's wrath remains on me. We'll save the wrath piece for last. 
Um, I got to work up my Southern Baptist fiery side to get ready. So let's hit the first piece. I'll work it up and then we'll come back. Okay. My self-absorption is likely why I don't experience enduring joy. Where do we see that? Uh, you're like, John, come on, dog. Show me this in the text, right? Let me show you in the text. John chapter 3, verse 22. What we see is Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem, right? They leave the city. They go to the countryside. Leave Jerusalem, go to Judea. So for our context, they leave Kadena. They go to Okuma, right? They're out, they're out in the country now. Um... John and his followers are a little further north. They're also out in the countryside. They're in Samaria. Samaria was kind of a, we'll use the word county. It was a county just north of Judea where Jesus and his boys were. So Jesus and the boys are in SEC, ACC, Chick-fil-A country. And uh, John and the boys are up north where, where I come from. Both groups are baptizing people, right? So, so Jesus and his followers are baptizing those who are new to following Jesus. John and his boys are also baptizing people. And notice what the text says. An argument breaks out among, or between a Jewish man or a Jewish person and John's followers. And they're arguing over the Jewish laws related to purification, Remember, when we do the work to find ourselves in the text, it's not hard to find ourselves places. So we would be these people having an argument about a probably a secondary thing, right? Uh, uh, distracting us from the primary reason why we exist. So they're having this argument, and we, we don't get detail here from John, but something about the argument makes John fo John's followers go to John and be like, yo, like we're having this conversation, and we realized... Uh, we used to baptize a whole bunch of people, and now hardly anybody's coming to us, but uh, everybody, notice what the text says, all people, every, like tons of people are going to Jesus. And again, John's not feeling, we don't have the color commentary here, but um, there is a sense in which these guys are saying, something's wrong with us. Jesus is better. What are we doing wrong? That's probably what the argument was about. Jesus is handling this thing better than we are. He's gaining all the followers. We're losing them. But it's also kind of an indictment on John and his leadership. Like, yo, John, like, what's, what happened? You used, to be the, you used to be the podcast preacher that everybody listened to. Now the stats are declining. Jesus is gathering everybody. What's wrong? We got to fix this. His followers are really self-absorbed in this moment. That's, that's, that's what's going on. So let's kind of unpack what's happening. So John does what any good leader still does in, in our context. He forms a school circle. He calls his people in. They sit down. He's like, look, let's, let's talk about this. And he says two things. The, the first thing, to generalize it, he says, boys, listen, we need, to rehearse, we need to rehearse something. And the first thing is, Everything we have is a present from the Father, a gift or a present, right? Everything's a gift. Everything's a present. Piece number one. Piece number two, every present we receive is given to us to point to Jesus, the true and better one. That's what he's going to unpack for them. You see that in verse 27 where John simply responds, listen, listen, boys, um, you're making all this noise about Jesus having more, us having less. Let me just remind you of a gospel truth. A person cannot receive any one thing unless it is given him from heaven, from the Father. Um, so this is true in our life. You don't have anything in your life, any good thing that has not been given to you by the Father. Nothing. Every good gift comes, James would say, comes from above, from the Father of lights. Everything you have is a gift from the Father. When we are self-absorbed, we lose sight of the gift 
And rather than being thankful for the kind father who gives us a gift to steward for his fame and the good of other people, we do two things, and it's exactly what his followers are doing. They're comparing. That's what we do first. This person has more. I'm broken. I'm wrong. They're better. I need to do it. I, I need, right? Something's not right. God's not fair. I'm not adequate. They're better. Right? We just go down all these rabbit holes when we're absorbed with ourselves. So we compare, but then we also criticize. And that's exactly what they're doing to John and maybe even to Jesus. Maybe they're criticizing John's leadership. Maybe they're criticizing Jesus. Maybe they feel like he's taking shortcuts. He's given them a watered down gospel or something. And so now he's drawn a bigger crowd, right? So there's criticism and comparison going on. And John says, boys, it's it's all a gift. The Father in his kindness gives us a certain number of people. The Father in his kindness gives Jesus a certain number of people. You're criticizing and you're comparing. What the gospel is going to do, though, is set us free not to criticize or compare, but to celebrate the good things that are happening in the lives of other people in the Father's family. So if we're looking for, like, evidences in our life, like, if we're going to stop and be like, man, I don't know, am I self-absorbed? Um, right now in this season, one of the primary ways that we can tell our heart is very self-absorbed right now, two ways, I guess, is that we are comparing ourselves against everybody else or complaining, criticizing, we're not good enough, they're better, the Father's not fair. Two crystal clear clues that our hearts might be self-absorbed. And so John reminds him of the gift, but then secondly, he reminds him of the purpose of the gifts. And he's like, boys, let me tell you a little story. Uh, Imagine a wedding. I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourselves at a wedding now. Uh, Imagine all the things, right? All the things. You've got the, um, well, I'll lean into our cultural references. I know it was different for them. You got the runner going down the aisle. The flower girl's already gone. The flowers are all down. You got 300 people crammed into a space that should be air conditioned, but you're too cheap in the wedding package. So you just open the windows, right? Like all the things. But here the music's playing, the bride's walking down, and here's this dude, this, we know him as the best man or the friend of the groom. And he is loving this moment for his friend. He's like, holy cow, a girl agreed to marry my boy. Like that's the first big win. I can't believe this is actually happening. She said, yes, but he's glad not for himself. He's not in the spotlight. He's glad for him. And he's glad for the family union that's being formed. And he's glad for the moment and the beauty and all the life that's going to flow out of it. So he's celebrating, but he's tapping his buddy on his shoulders and he's kind of scanning the room to take it all in. And John tells him this little story and he's like, boys, look, here's the deal. I'm the best man. I, we are the friend of the groom. You know what your problem is right now? In your rebellion, you're inserting yourself into the story like you're the groom. Guys, that's what we do every day in our rebellion. We approach life like we are the bride or the groom and need this attention and this affirmation and all of these things when in reality our place in the story is best friend of the groom, best man. So in our rebellion... At our worst, we flip the script and we slide out of the best man role and we slide into the groom roles. Um, At best, we're a bad best man. Because you can imagine how broken this scenario would be where the best man is next to the groom. Um, But rather than scanning the crowd, he's trying to lock eyes with the bride and 
insert himself into all these moments that should be shared intimately for the groom and the bride. And he's like leaning into the photos, leaning into the first kiss photo. The toast is all about him, right? You could imagine how that could unfold. And it's cringeworthy, right? Like we're laughing, but it's hideous. It's awkward. It's cringeworthy. Guys, that's exactly what we have done in our rebellion. And it's equally hideous and it's equally cringeworthy. And John's saying, look, my joy, my joy, here's where, here's to our first point. My joy comes from the joy of the groom. My joy comes from the joy of this moment. My joy comes from the formation of this family. My joy is, is I find joy meaningfully when all the attention is given to the groom and all of the attention is given to the beauty of this relationship that's being formed and people being added to the groom's family. But what will our culture tell you? You will find your deepest joy when you approach life like you are the bride or the groom. You do you. You explore all of you. You find every desire that you have and you follow it out to its fullest expression. Doesn't matter what anybody else says because that's where you'll find joy. Guys, remember the complicated relationship that we have with the truth? Those are all lies. And it's God and his kindness who breaks through our Truman Show dorm or uh, dorm dome and in kindness opens our eyes to those lies and says no you are created so that your joy will be full actually when you stop chasing joy and you start chasing Jesus your joy will be full when you realize I've given you a beautiful role in the story as best friend to the groom or best man and stop trying to live every day like you're the doggone bride or groom Guys, it's no wonder that we have such a fleeting relationship with joy here today and gone tomorrow. We're playing the wrong character in the story. It's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. It's a paradox. But you will know joy in, enduring, in an enduring kind of way when you put your desire for your joy's primacy, you put it to death. And instead, you just go hard after Jesus. Your joy will be full then, and your joy will be most full, not when other people pursue you and serve you, but when on behalf of Jesus, as the, as the best man or as his best friend, you serve so that you can point other people to him. And when those people are made glad in Jesus, then you will know a full and enduring joy. Guys, this is countercultural. You're gonna, you're, after we're done here, we all step back into the dome. In this space, our friend that we, you know, purpose of the movie, don't even know, is inserting this truth to us to open our eyes and to give us life. And so maybe we, as a family, just need to spend a few minutes and consider quietly John's statement then. He says, based on this story and based on these things, he must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. So where presently in my life right now does Jesus not have any access to my heart or my life? Where presently have I increased a whole lot and Jesus is the one in a decreasing role or a diminishing role? Where in my life right now am I living more like the groom or the bride? Ladies, you can use that word. 
and less like the best man or the matron of honor? If we can chase those questions down, we will be able to accurately diagnose why our hearts don't currently have joy. Again, with asterisk likely, because we're acknowledging that life is complicated. There's lots of nuance, and some of you in here are just in a very dark season right now, and it's not because you're self-absorbed. Actually, I guess we could say it this way. The reason that you may be in a dark season right now, if it's unrelated to you or your former self-absorption, is because of the self-absorption of another person. Because in their failure to submit to God's truth and to love God and love people, in that failure, they have loved themselves more and stepped out from underneath God's truth. And you have, your body now is bearing shrapnel wounds from the consequences of their decision. So really at the root, it's either my failure to live in my father's truth or another person's, right? Uh, but there, I, we're acknowledging that there are wounds in your life that you're not responsible for. But for those wounds that I am responsible for, the likely root is that I'm living as groom and not friend to the groom. So let's chase that down as a family. So he, he, he gives them that wedding picture, and then we pivot a little bit, and we're back into the paragraph that we opened with. But I'd like to take your eyes to the bottom of that in verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. But here's the, the focus of our, our next idea. The wrath of God remains on him. And so that second big idea is in my self-dependence, that self-dependence likely, again, likely signals God's wrath remains on me. Now, we did this in the first service, but I'm just really curious, how many of you in the last five to ten years have sat through a sermon on the topic of God's wrath? Okay, two, oh, a few more. Look at that. We've got a real Christians in this group. <laughs> no, I'm just messing. But not very many of us, right? Still a very strong minority. Um, it's not a topic that is embraced in a healthy way in most places. When I think about God's wrath, I think of Goldilocks and the three bears. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in counseling. I've already told you that before. So it should come in. But I think of Goldilocks and the three bears. Here's what I mean. Goldilocks breaks into a house, right? So she's a criminal already. It's a weird story. She breaks into a house. She goes into their kitchen and eats their food, right? These are the stories we tell our kids. And she tries Papa's porridge and what? Too hot. Tries Mama's porridge. It's what? Too cold. But Baby Bear's porridge is? Perfect. Then we go to the living room because we're done with the porridge. And we sit in Papa Bear's chair. But his chair is? Too hard. Mama Bear? Too soft. Baby Bear's chair? Just right. Doesn't it break, though? Super weird. I've never understood that part of the story. It doesn't fit. It should just be right. But then she goes up to the bedroom because the chair breaks, and she tries Papa Bear's chair, or bed, too hard. Mama Bear's too soft. Baby Bear, perfect, and we nap, we fall asleep. 
Guys, I honestly can't think of a better example to describe kind of the streams that we come from or the, the worlds that we come from as it relates to God's wrath. If you're like me, you grew up in Papa Bear's house when it came to God's wrath. The porridge was flaming hot. So every sermon that dealt with God's wrath came at this volume and with this tone, right? It was a sweaty, heavy, angry sermon that just yelled at you with a growl. It's a culture. It is an expression of Christianity. Um, God's angry. Be afraid. Now, we acknowledge there's a place for that conversation, right? Where we're sharing the gospel. And for those who do not yet know Jesus, there is a healthy place where we need to talk about God's fear. However, once we're adopted into the family, doesn't our relationship with God's wrath change drastically? Right? So we'll get to that. But many of us grew up in that house. house. The porridge was too hot. Chair was too big, too hard. Bed was too hard. And so was our Christian experience. We wrestled with guilt and shame. God was angry at us all the time. We spent so much of our lives trying to keep God happy. Every night we prayed the sinner's prayer because undoubtedly we did something that made him mad and he was going to kick me out of the family. Dad's always angry. Guys, what an abhorrent version of the gospel. Who of you has that kind of relationship with your kids in your home? Like you want them to fall asleep questioning whether or not you love them or if you're just angry at them all the time? Wow. So a lot of us grew up in that house. But I think most of us, if we're honest, grew up in Mama Bear's house. Porridge was really cold. Chair was too soft. Bed was... God's just love, man. The Old Testament, that's angry God. The New Testament, that's the true God. He's just love. Forget all the stuff. That's, that, that really doesn't mean anything. God's just happy and he just wants you to be happy. And it's the sanitized, detoxed, kid gloves, gentle, fake version of the gospel. And it's very damaging too because the weight or the beauty of the gospel loses its significance. Why did Jesus even die then? Why would I need a rescuer? I'm just, I can be okay with God. No, God's wrath is a really serious thing to grapple with. Where we want to be, I mean, it would be really unhealthy for baby bear to uh, move out and have her own house. But as it relates to God's wrath, we want to grow up in her house. We want the twin truths of God's wrath and the beauty of the gospel to rock us to sleep in baby bear's bed. So that as God's kids, we understand the significance of his wrath and, it, and the reason we needed a substitute. And some of you in this room still need to repent and still need to believe that Jesus is your substitute because you are currently living under the expectation of God's wrath. But once you have believed and once you have been adopted in, guys, you should know so deeply that your father loves you You are perfectly loved, forever kept, and fully affirmed. And there's nothing you can do to make your dad angry or kick him out of the family. So much peace that you're rocked to sleep. Let me just show you real quick how it's not, God's wrath is not just an Old Testament idea. Well, let me take you to the Old Testament actually to show you. Um, I was going to take you to each of the prophets and we were going to go A to Z. And then I'm like, nah, I'll just do Amos and Zephaniah so we can have A and Z. But I'm like, we don't have time for all that. So here's Zephaniah, okay? 
Um, he's always left out anyway, so like that's it. That's Zephaniah. So let's, get, let's give the dog some floor time. Uh, so here's Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Okay, guys, wrath of God, serious, weighty. The, the great day of the Lord is near, and it's, it's hastening fast. For those of you who are not yet rescued, this day is coming faster than you realize. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. There's nothing sweet about it. The, the mighty man cries aloud here. Who's the mightiest man on the island? Let's have a little fun. Unit-wise, who are you most jealous of? Whose reputation would you like to be your own? Just units, guys. Not hard. What you got? Air Force? <laughs> We're a truth-telling family. <laughs> Dog. Uh, we got a little 1-1 one, one action in the first service. So that's, that's good. 1-1, one, one, our, our special uh, guys up on, on Tory. Guys, if we were to paraphrase this, the mighty man cries aloud here. We, we would say something like, 1-1 one, one is one and done. Or 1-1 or one, one would, the boys there, they would be crying all their training out the window. They would be so struck with fear. They would be paralyzed. They would throw their weapons down. They would lie face down on the floor. And they would cry like little babies. A day of wrath is that day. It's a day of distress and anguish. It's a day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress, God says, on mankind, all people, so that they will walk like the blind. Because here, here's the reason why. They've sinned against the Lord. We incur God's wrath because of our rebellion against a righteous God. Uh, righteous God. And maybe, maybe the best way to think about God's wrath, if, if we've not kind of summed it up neatly before, is God's wrath would be um, an expectation of his justice or the experience of his judgment, right? It's being stored up, so it's expectation of that justice, but God's wrath, it would, be, it would be you personally experiencing the full weight of God's judgment against your rebellion. You couldn't stand up against it. Verse 19, I will bring distress on mankind. They will walk like the blind. We read that. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. Our culture needs to hear that. You can't buy your way out. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. Guys, just because some of us grew up in an unhealthy culture where we had a bad relationship with God's wrath, cultures where people were jerks with us, doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to be faithful friends and communicate this truth in a loving way. We can be kind we don't have to be jerks in the presentation of weighty stuff. But I'm going to venture to say that's the minority of us. That's my background and maybe a few of you. But I think most of us come from a background where we're so afraid of talking about this or so we just, I'm not sure what the root there is, but we just don't talk about God's wrath with our friends who don't know God. We don't want to scare, maybe we don't want to scare them away from the gospel. Maybe we don't like, maybe we don't like it. Like, I'm not sure. We have to chase that down. But we need to be good friends, guys. And those of our friends who are not yet rescued by Jesus should have no expectation of his mercy, but every expectation of his wrath, his judgment. 
And that's really weighty. And what John is saying here in the end of chapter 3 is, the lack of belief in Jesus is actually an indication that the Father's wrath remains on us. In other words, I depend on myself more than I depend on Jesus for anything. Getting right with the Father, living daily life. It's, it's, it's a likely indicator that I've not been born again. Because in a born again, in the heart of a born again kid, like I'm awakened to my dependence. And I'm awakened to see my dependence as a good thing, not a bad thing. And I'm awakened to realize that in my dependence, I actually find joy in running to Jesus instead of depending on my own strength. So self-dependence is an indicator that it's possible or likely that I'm still underneath the wrath of God. And we need to sit with that. We need to sit with this and allow this difficult truth to bounce around in our hearts. But we also need to rehearse the gospel as we consider God's wrath. And so we would press into the New Testament, into Romans. Uh, again, just to show you that it's not just an Old Testament idea, here's Romans 1. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the, oh, wait, what? We have a complicated relationship with what? The truth. Guys, it's not for the worst of us rebels. It's for all of us rebels. There aren't varying degrees, right? We're, we're all rebels. But the good news of the gospel presses on into Romans 5, Romans 5, 9, where it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, right? Jesus in our place, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Guys, some of you need to hear this for the first time. Our father does not take pleasure in pouring out his wrath on rebels. He does not delight in destroying the lives of rebel kids. The father delights in showing mercy the Father is righteous and just, though, and so he has to pour that wrath out. He, look, if he didn't, you couldn't trust him. He would not be loving. It's actually an expression of his love, and it's an expression of his justice. If he doesn't pour wrath out in judgment of um, injustices, he's no God at all. You can have him because he's not just and he's not loving, and there is no hope. If he doesn't right all the wrongs, forget about it. It's an expression of his love. But he doesn't take delight in pouring that wrath out. And so Jesus descended, went to the cross in our place, and in mercy, the Father poured all of his wrath for your rebellion and mine on Jesus in that moment, our rescuing king and true and better older brother, so that the Father's wrath would be exhausted on him. And now all we would know is mercy and kindness and gentleness from the Father. Okay, so these two driving truths in this passage, Jesus' presence in our lives increases, makes our joy complete. Jesus' presence in our lives increasing makes the Father's wrath obsolete, gone, finished, satisfied, done. That's really good news for us. 
And that's how I want to finish because the, I don't want you to walk away with guilt and shame. I don't want you to walk away say, man, that was a, you slayed me with that sermon, John. That would, that would kind of be a malpractice of the gospel. I want you to feel the weight, especially if you're, man, you're a friend and you don't yet know Jesus. I, I do want the weight of God's wrath to rest on you so that you will see the beauty of Jesus' rescue for you. But for those of you who are already in the family, guys, I, I want, we need a paradigm shift because we're going to confess over communion in a few moments, and that's good. We, we need to be daily confessors. But the problem is we will confess and we will live in this guilt and shame or this fear that the, post, the Father has this angry posture towards us. Now, will the Father correct us? You bet. He's a good Father. Will He discipline us? You bet. For our good and for His reputation. You bet. But what's the motive behind that correction and discipline? What's his posture as a dad? It's gentleness. It's kindness. It's mercy. It's a good father whose lap you would gladly jump into. Not a father with a swinging fist you would run from and hide under your bed or in your closet or cover your ears. So some of us, all of us, as the father's kids, need to take a moment this morning and sit and in the confession of our sin, recognizing that we still have hearts that bend towards self-absorption, and we still have hearts that bend towards self-dependence, here's what we need to, to just rest with. The Father knows that. And that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross in your place. And all of the Father's wrath for that rebellion has been satisfied in Jesus. So that now you can sit there confessing your sin. Your Father embraces you through the Spirit and affirms you through your ear. I love you and I accept you and I'm going to forever keep you. And son, daughter, there is nothing you can do that will ever make me change my mind about you and kick you out of my family. God, we need a paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift only comes through the gospel. I think Darren's going to come now and lead us uh, to the same rhythms we practice every week. Celebrate communion, confess our sin, and be reminded of our Father's uh, mercy towards us.